Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. So Nehemiah 10, 28 to 39. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the firstborn, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we'll bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the tithes are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Good morning, everyone. Great to be in church together this morning, and um, let's just pray before we start. Lord God, we just uh, want to thank you uh, for your presence here with us today. We just want to acknowledge that you're here, and we ask 
and invite your Holy Spirit to fill us afresh this morning. Lord, as we open up what is a fairly heavy passage, I pray, Lord God, that you would encourage us and challenge us and change us. And I pray that we'd leave this place feeling closer to you than when we first walked in. Thank you for the chance we've had to worship you so far. And as we go through this, uh, the rest of this service, Lord, may we honour you in everything we do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friday a week ago, we had our men's breakup at the Packenham Bowls Club. And uh, when we arrived, we were separated into separate groups. And it was fair to say that the competition was pretty hot. Uh, I was put in a group with uh, Mark Sage and Rowan Walker and Jerome. And I noticed pretty quickly that Rowan and Jerome had a fair bit of style when it came to uh, lawn bowls. Uh, they said they haven't really played it much before, but I'm pretty sure every Friday night you'll find them down at the bowls club and they had this really sort of fancy style about them. And they were, I hate to say it, they were quite good at it. And um, yeah, so I won't mention anything about Mark, but, but Rowan and Jerome, <laughs> sometimes it's what you don't say, isn't it? Uh, Rowan and Jerome were, were quite stylish when it came to lawn bowls. And I've got to say, there was a lot of trash talk going on. Uh, they were a bit like the two Muppets up in the balcony, just yabba, 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 um, trash talk the whole time. And we we're coming to the last round of lawn bowls that night, and Jerome was winning, and Rowan was coming second, at which point I suggested that on the last bowl, uh, we should make it that the winner takes all. Now, I'm pretty sure at that point we entered a binding watertight covenantal agreement that the winner of the last ball would be crowned the winner overall. And so for the first time in the evening, uh, I got serious about bowling. So I took the jacket off and puffed out the chest and got the bowls and started to concentrate. And it just so happens on the last bowl that two of my bowls came closest to the jack, uh, which was great because it was the first time I really tried for the night. And... And so logically speaking, that would mean that I am crowned the champion of our bowls team on that particular night. Now, Jerome's not happy about that. Um, he hasn't got the microphone today, so that's a good thing. Um, but I was crowned champion. But it's amazing what happens when you put a bunch of competitive people together. Nobody wants to lose. And I think the reason that nobody wants to lose is because someone once said that second place is the first loser. And I want to ask you the question today. And this is a question I think that will challenge us to the core in every area of our life. And the question is this, in which areas of our lives are we making God the first loser? Which area of our lives are we making God the first loser? Now, I'm not talking about loser like that. God can't be that kind of loser. He's incredible in every single way. But what I'm saying is this, in which area of our lives is God losing out in our affections, in our attention, in our priorities, in our finances, in our relationships, in our lives. And so the title of today's message, I want you to help me with it. I want you to repeat it after me. Can you do that? The title of today's message is, Put God First. We can do better than that. We're going to? Put God First. All right. What are we going to do, Sanjeev? We're going to put God first. Not very good. Okay. What are we going to do, Christine? We're going to put God first. Much better. Much better, Sanjeev. Excellent. Last time I walked down the aisle, I had a mirror. Today I've got a microphone. I don't know which one terrifies you more. Christian's not looking at me. What are we going to do, Christian? Put God first. John? Put God first. Mm, Christine will go better. Put God first. Yeah, excellent. All right. Who's not looking at me? Neil? Mais Jésus en premier. Yes, okay. Excellent. Which in French means go away, Luke. What are we going to do? Put God 
Are we going to put him second? No. We're going to put him 13th? No. We're going to put him 97th? No. No, we're going to... Put God Excellent. Every time I do that during the service, I want you to say... Put God Excellent. Now, let's close in prayer. <laughs> if you've been missing the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we're up to week eight, uh, chapter 10 in the book of Nehemiah. And at this stage of the story, God's people have returned to Jerusalem. And under Nehemiah's leadership, they have rebuilt the wall right around the city. They've done it to protect themselves from their enemies. But their vision has always been to see the city go through revival. They want to see this city be a dwelling place for God's name once again. And at this part of the story, the people have turned their hearts back to God and some extraordinary things are happening. In chapter 9 last week, um, the priest read out the history of Israel to the people. And to sum up Ray's message last week, if you missed it, you can listen to it on the podcast. It was a great message. If I could sum up his message in a couple of words, it would be basically this, that it highlighted God's constant faithfulness in light of the constant unfaithfulness of God's people. And so God was faithful over and over and over again, and yet God's people kept being unfaithful over and over and over again. And so as the history of Israel was read out to God's people here with Nehemiah, they were reminded of God's faithfulness and their unfaithfulness. And so in the last verse of the last chapter, they make a commitment. And they say these words, in view of all of this, our history, God's faithfulness, our unfaithfulness, in light of all of that, we're going to make a binding agreement. This was like our covenant at bowling last Friday night, very serious. And they said, we're going to put it in writing, which was my mistake. I didn't get it in writing. They're going to put it in writing and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So we didn't read the whole chapter 10 today um, to save Pete reading out all those uh, hard to pronounce kind of names. But as we go back to the start of the chapter, we see a bit of a list of the people that committed to this covenant. And it started with the leaders in verse 1. Nehemiah, the governor, he puts his seal on the agreement to turn back to God, to put him first in everything. In verse 9, it's followed by the Levites, who were the priestly tribe. In verse 14, the leaders of the people did it. And then in verse 28, the rest of the people committed. And so that's what we started with this morning. Let me read it to you again. Verse 28 says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all of these people now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. What we are seeing in this moment is a group of people who are saying, we are all in. We have turned away from the things we were doing wrong. We've come back to God and we are now all in. This is not sort of dipping our toes in the edge of the water. It's plunging in head first. It's saying, I'm fully in God. I'm immersing myself in you and I'm willing to be obedient according to your word, no matter what it costs me. It's a line in the sand, marker in history, defining moment, promise being made to God. These people are ready to count the cost of a commitment to put God first. I think one of the key sentences in this passage is verse 29 And it says that it included all of those who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God. There's a lot of pressure coming on us as Christians, isn't it? And the pressure is to abandon God's word. A lot of people say it's irrelevant, it's outdated, it's not politically correct. And so we should ditch that and just sort of embrace the worldview of our 
uh, culture around us. And there's a lot of pressure all the time on Christians to do that. But it's really important to note that these people set themselves apart and they made decisions for the sake of God's word. And I think that's as critical for us today as it is in any point of history. Matthew Henry says in his commentary that conversion includes separating ourselves, separating ourselves from the course and customs of this world and devoting ourselves to the conduct of the word of God. And so it's critical for us today where people both inside and outside the church are departing from God's word, that we are a group of people who stand on God's word no matter what. No matter how much people say it's irrelevant and outdated and and not applicable to our lives, no matter how much we're criticized and persecuted and given a hard time, we are what sets us apart from the rest of the world is that we say we've got an audience of one and it's God and God's word is given to us and we're going to live by it. And when we do, there's incredible blessing in our lives. And so we need to be people who stand on the word of God. And that's what these people were doing. And when we do that, we become people who put God first in every area of our lives. And so today, in this passage, there are three main areas that these people were recommitting their lives in and they were putting God first in. And so the first one, these people... Sanjeev got it. Excellent. He mucked it up before, but he got it this time. All right, so these people what? Excellent. He put God first in their relationships. In verse 30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Now, in our culture, we dads often walk our daughters down the aisle and give them away in marriage. On their wedding day, we hand them over to their new husband. Now, God willing, that will happen three times in my life in the future, that I'll hand over my daughters to a lovely young guy. Sometimes it's a really sad occasion. Sometimes it's a really joyful occasion, depending on who they're marrying. And um, sometimes it's just a massive relief. It's like, here, take her. She's your problem. Uh, She's yours from now on. Um, Call me and leave a message on the voicemail because I won't answer. She's, She's yours. I'm sure that won't happen in my family, but maybe that's happened in your family. But in Nehemiah's culture and in many parts of the world today, marriages are actually arranged by the parents. And there are people in this church whose marriage was arranged by their parents. And I've got to say, I'm not opposed to it. And so if you're a godly young man, feel free to fill out a marriage application form for our daughters and I will consider all applications. Let me just do a little disclaimer on that. Um, You better put God first. You better love and respect our daughters. Uh, And if you don't, if you're not willing to lay your life down for them, save yourself the time and don't fill out the form. Because I've got a shotgun. I haven't really. Ray Granger has and I'll borrow it. Actually, one of my daughters once had a boyfriend. That probably narrows down which daughter it was. Um, And once that ended up, she said to me, hey, dad, you can choose my husband. And I'm like, this is like every father's dream, isn't it? It's like, I get to choose the husband for my daughter. And so I'm thinking, what would I choose? Are they going to be a saint supporter? They've got to love Jesus. Sorry, not in that order. Jesus, saint supporter. And uh, you can choose what you want for your son-in-law. It would be wonderful. Um, but it hasn't happened yet. I haven't found the right guy. Um, and if she just chooses the complete opposite to last time, she'll probably be on the right track. Um, but if this covenant were to be repeated today, If this covenant were to be repeated this morning, it wouldn't be focused towards the parents. It would actually be focused in our culture towards the individuals who wanted to get married. And it would say something like this, that we're making a covenant today, that we will not 
marry anyone who's not got a strong faith in God. That we won't settle for the first person who shows interest. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, this can be a real challenge for single Christians who have a desire to be in a relationship. Because once you say, I'm going to commit myself to a Christian person, the pool of available people all of a sudden shrinks, doesn't it? And when you say, okay, well, I've got this pool, but now I want to uh, narrow it down further to someone who's actually fed income about their faith in Jesus, then the pool gets even smaller again. And what can happen is over months and years, as nobody comes forward to be your life partner, it can be easy to lose faith and lose trust in God that he's got someone for you. And I've seen many times before that people have got to that point and they've decided just to settle for the first person who shows interest. In a previous church I pastored, I had a couple of single girls come and see me at different times and share with me that they'd lost faith that God would provide someone for them. Now, both of those girls, I ended up conducting their weddings within the next two years. But at this point in their life, they lost faith. They thought, God's not going to provide anyone. I can't find anyone. The pool's too small. And so they came to ask my advice on what I thought about them dating a non-Christian. Now, I explained to them, Uh, In that moment, that marriage, in my opinion, is a relationship in which you want to be able to share the things that are most precious to you with the person that you commit your life to. Uh, In our marriage, um, I love footy. I don't know if I've mentioned that before in any of my sermons, but but I love footy and um, Kim hates footy and that's okay. Kim loves doing the washing. I don't know where the washing machine is or how to use it. Uh, We've both got different interests. Um, Kim's a wonderful woman. She's not an angel. She doesn't actually love doing the washing. Um, she's got other interests. She likes doing craft and, and stuff that I don't really enjoy. And, and that's okay. We can do separate things. And, and that's fine within a marriage to have your own kind of time. But if I can't share with my life partner the things that are most important in my life, it's going to limit my marriage in significant ways. Because for us, God isn't just a hobby. He's not just a little portion of our lives. God's everything to us. He's the center of our lives. He's the foundation and the joy and the hope for the future that we have. And so if I can't share that with Kim, it's going to limit my marriage in some significant ways. Let me say that apart from your decision to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I think who you married is one of the most important decisions you'll ever make in life. And so we can settle for someone that's not at the same place spiritually, but a decision like that will have lifelong impact on your faith. Now, if you're in a situation like this today already, that you have married someone who's not a Christian or you are both not Christians and one of you has become a Christian, there's certainly no judgment here today at all. In fact, I would say to you that you find yourself in a covenant relationship, a relationship where before God, you've made promises to dedicate yourselves to that person for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to sacrificially love and serve one another in this beautiful relationship we call marriage. And so my my prayer for you is that if you're in a marriage where one's a Christian and one's not, that that my prayer would be that you'd be able to at least share the things that are most important to you with one another. That would be my prayer for you. But if you're a single person here today, or you're someone who's dating and you want to uh, be in a long-term relationship or get married, I want to speak specifically to you today. If you're desiring a relationship, I would beg you not to settle for someone that is not going to encourage and compliment you in your faith. I want to encourage you today to set the bar high when it comes to a life partner. Now, I'm not talking about being ridiculous. Some people I've met are just ridiculously picky, and girls, you can be notoriously bad in this area. 
I just want a, a six foot four guy. He's got to have blonde hair and blue eyes, and he needs to love reading poetry, but be a bodybuilder, and I want him to do ballroom dancing, and he needs to have raisin toast with peanut butter, and I'm not settling for anyone less than that. He is not putting a ring on this uh, unless I find that man. Well, let me give you a little news flash. There's probably only one man like that on the planet. He probably lives on the border of Norway and Sweden somewhere. He's not coming to Australia and he has no idea who you are. And so if you're that picky and you've got all these boxes you have to tick, you'll probably never find anybody. And don't get me started on the guys who want a girl that's hot and fit and, and you know, has a good job and is on fire for Jesus. But at the same time, you're sitting on the couch playing Call of Duty. Stuffing your face with chips, not looking for work, haven't picked up your Bible for 12 months. In fact, you don't even know where it is. And yet you say you want someone on fire for Christ. Let me tell you what you are. You are a Volkswagen Beetle with a rusted out floor looking for a Ferrari. (laughs) Need to get real. Need to understand that you will attract who you are. You will attract who you are. If you want someone on fire for Jesus, then put God first in your life. So important. And so don't have stupid expectations and conditions, but set the bar high when it comes to faith. Matt Chandler from the Village Church in Texas says, if you set the bar two inches high, you will have no shortage of morons herding towards your front door. (laughs) He goes on to say, but if you put the bar up and go, no, thank you. No, I'm not signing up for that. If you raise your expectations, if we raise the bar on what we expect out of a potential life partner, he says, I think by and large, by the grace of God, they'll rise to it. You keep it low, I guarantee you they'll stay low. I promise you. I promise you sin has bent us in that direction, and I think he's spot on. And so if you're looking for a life partner, you're a Christian person, committed to putting God first, I would encourage you to set the bar high when it comes to faith. And it's not just in romantic relationships. If you are um, putting God first, it will determine who you go into business with. It will impact um, who we spend all of our time with. If we spend all of our time with people who have no interest in God at all, then that's not going to build us up in our faith. Now, we need to spend some time with those people. That's what mission's all about. If we just get in our Christian bubbles and we never interact with non-Christian people, how are we going to have an impact? And so we need to spend time with those people. But as a Christian, we need to balance it with other Christians who can meet together like this and encourage one another, build one another up, and encourage each other to put God first in their relationship. It'll impact who you have as a mentor. You know, I I hear some of the people that people choose for their mentors and I think, what could you possibly want to learn from that person? You'd be better off having no mentor at all than choosing someone like that. And so this will determine, if you want to put God first in your life, it'll determine who you spend your time with, even in a Christian community. It may limit who you spend time with. If there are people within a Christian community who are prone to gossip or always negative and they won't repent of that, then it's going to limit how much time you spend with those people because you want to be with people that will build you up and encourage you to put God first in your life. So the question I have today is this, what relationship do you have in your life that helps encourage you to put God first? What relationships do you have in your life that encourage you to put God first. These people of God were returning to him with all of their hearts. And part of that decision individually and corporately was to put God first in their relationships. The second point today is that they... Slow learners. I think it's better when I use my right hand. Put God first. Put God 
Excellent. Okay, we put God first. The second thing they put God first in was their business. Verse 31, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Now, this was a big deal. It was a big deal because they are making an oath to put God first in their business. And the situation was this, that the foreign merchants merchants often arrived in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And when they got there, they wanted to do business now. And the temptation was to strike while the iron was hot, was to make money while you can, to cash in while the business was available. As a matter of fact, it was more than just a temptation. It's exactly what they'd been doing. Despite God telling them to keep the Sabbath holy, they had been trading and doing business on the Sabbath. But now they're coming back into a covenant with God. Now, I've heard it said that repentance is doing a 180-degree turn. It's stopping what you're doing. It's turning in a different direction, and it's now pursuing God. And that's exactly what they're doing. They've been doing certain things with their business, but they're coming back into a relationship with God. They're going to stop those things, and they're turning, and they're going to actually pursue God with their business. And it's a really important thing for us to remember, that we'll be people that say, God, we're willing to do that, that we're willing to do that because we trust you. If we put you first in our business, if we seek you first, we trust that you will take care of our needs. We're not going to stress out that we'll miss out. We're not going to stress out that we miss out, but we're going to trust you in your faithfulness, even if it costs something. In verse 31, it goes on to say that every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we'll cancel all the debts. Now, they're going back to the law that was given in Deuteronomy. God commanded in Deuteronomy 15 verse 2, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for cancelling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. Now, many people believe that this is a total cancellation of debt. And wouldn't that be good? Uh, We take out a mortgage, take out a million dollars, stretch it out over 50 years and know that after seven years, they're going to say, don't worry about it, mate. Keep the million dollar house. You haven't even paid off the principal yet, but but we'll we'll, we'll let you out of this debt. And, And that sounds really good. But that's not my understanding of how this actually worked. What actually happened was that every seven years, your debt was suspended for the 12 month period. So it's the equivalent of me getting a phone call. Hello. Hello, Mr. Williams. Yes, Luke speaking. Uh, it's Mr. Westpac here. Oh, hello, Mr. Westpac. How are you going? Now, I'm just wanting to let you know that um, you've had your loan now for almost seven years. And I'm just wanting to let you know that this upcoming year, um, you won't have to pay any repayments or any interest on your loan, at which point you would go, thank you, sir. And you would realize that that's going to save you a fortune for the next 12 months. If you've got a mortgage or you pay rent, you'll know that a significant amount of your income goes towards servicing those things. And so imagine the relief it would be that one year every seven, you didn't have to pay anything on that loan. That it would just be suspended for 12 months. Imagine the money that would be freed up to sow into God's work or to save to make the next year manageable or to go on holiday or to fix the issues around the house. It would be a great relief. And in Nehemiah's culture, it would have been a wonderful relief for the poor. We've heard in the last few weeks that the rich had been getting richer, the poor had been getting poorer, and the rich had been charging massive interest to the poor. So imagine the relief for the poor in this seventh year where all their debt was suspended. But it wouldn't have been only a relief for the poor. It would have also been 
at the same time, a great step of faith and obedience for those in business because they were demonstrating a willingness to elevate God's word above their own personal gain. They were willing to forego the money for 12 months that they could make because their desire was to put God first. Excellent. Put God first in their business. In the commentary I read this week, it says, this is a great challenge for the church today. When many are in careers where they have the opportunity to make money in many ways that are unethical or morally wrong. We need to have the same heart they had here and covenant before God to only make money in ways that are obedient and glorifying to him. And so if you're a business owner here today, if you're a person making a good income, or if you're just a Christian in any situation, we need to ask ourselves the question, how can we conduct our business, our dealings and our careers in a way that will put God first? Many of us, this commentary goes on to say, as was true in Nehemiah's day, slip into these practices subtly. We don't wake up in the morning saying we're going to cut corners or exaggerate on our tax returns or cheat others or defraud the system. We do it because we think we need to. Bills need to be paid, the kids need things and so on. Then we do it because it works, but we don't really need to if we trust God because he will take care of us. We should never trust our slick ways of doing business more than we trust God in heaven. What great advice that is. And we need to put first God in our business. The third and final thing today is that we need to put God first first in our wealth. And that's what they did. They put God first in their wealth. Now, two weeks ago, part of my message was on generous giving from Nehemiah chapter 7. And I said on that day that I find it a challenge to preach on financial giving. And so I got through the message. (laughs) Nobody left the church, at least that I know of. And I ticked the box and thought, great, we got through that. Got home that afternoon, I flicked forward to the passage I'd be preaching on today and thought, what will we be preaching on today? And I see a chapter on tithing. And I thought to myself, why did you not get Dave to preach today? Why? Stupid. 18 months, no messages on money. Now two sermons in a row, you've got teaching on money. And if you didn't leave the first time, you get a second crack at it this week. But here at Follow, we typically just preach what's next. And what's next in this passage is tithing. Now, if you don't know what a tithe is, it's something initiated by God in the Old Testament, and it was basically bringing the first and best of your increase into the house of God. For, for these people, it was the firstborn of their cattle or their crops or whatever they used to make an income, and it was setting aside that portion of what God had provided for them um, for God's house and God's purposes. And as they were obedient to that, God promised that he would bless them. In Malachi 3, verse 10, for example, it says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. He says, Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. For us, the equivalent in our culture today would be the first 10% of our income to be set aside for the church or the house of God, that our first and our best would be dedicated to him. Now, some people say that this is just an Old Testament practice. It's not a, not a New Testament thing. And it's true that many things change post-Jesus. Jesus, when he came, shaped what things would look like in his kingdom. And he said, there's a new covenant in me. And so after Christ, some things continued, some things were abolished, and some things he raised the bar on. So let me give you an example of something that was abolished. The sacrificial system was abolished. 
in the Old Testament, they'd have to bring their, their cows and their sheep and their sacrifices to the temple and, and something would be slaughtered and the blood would be spilt and that cattle would be a substitute for their sin. And so the sins they'd committed that they deserved to die for, the animal would die in their place and God's judgment would pass over them. And so they would, time and time again, they'd have to bring sacrifices into the temple. But Jesus at the cross became our once and for all substitute. So Jesus on the cross, he took your sin and he took my sin upon himself and he died for it. And he stretched out his hands with all of our sin upon him and he said, it's finished. And if we put our faith in Jesus, uh, we don't have to atone for our sins anymore because Jesus paid the price for them. You and I can be forgiven. You and I can have hope for the future. You and I can be set free from the power of sin and the power of death. That's the power of the gospel. And that's an incredibly exciting message. And so the sacrificial system was abolished. And so we no longer each week have to bring our cows and sheep in here. Can you imagine the mess? Bring it up to Luke, the priest, and you'll get the knife out and you'll kill the sheep or the cow. And I mean, it's hard enough finding a building for a church as it is. <laughs> you ring up and you say you're a church. They go, oh, well, what excuse can I come up with? Well, I've got something to do today. I can't talk. Hang up. Imagine if you rang up and said, I'm a church and we've got to sacrifice a whole bunch of sheep and cows every week. And they would just hang up straight away. And so it's great that the sacrificial system has been abolished in Christ. The same with some of the food laws. In the Old Testament, we read that there was certain things that you couldn't eat. And so you couldn't eat certain seafoods and you couldn't um, have pork. And, and thank God they've been abolished, right? It's great. Today you can go to Macca's after here and you can get a, a beef burger with bacon on it. And you can have a side of crocodile if you want because Jesus has abolished the food laws. Acts chapter 10, God appeared to Cornelius in a vision and a white sheet came down from heaven with all sorts of animals on it, you know, all sorts of four-legged animals and reptiles and birds. And he said, don't call unclean what I have made clean. He said, get up, kill and eat. And so the food laws were abolished in Christ. But then there's other things that he raised the bar on. For example, in the Old Testament, it says, do not commit adultery. In the New Testament, it says, you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. He said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other one. If someone forces you to walk a mile, go with him too. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is lifting the bar. He's saying, in this new covenant, this is what it is to love one another. This is what it is to live out the gospel every day. And I've given you the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do it. And so he raises the bar to a whole new level. But there's certain things that continue on. The Old Testament says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. In the New Testament, Jesus said the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And so it continues on. And I think tithing is either on the continue spectrum or it's on the raise the bar spectrum. I don't, I don't believe it's on the abolished spectrum for a couple of reasons. Number one, if Jesus commanded peasant farmers in the Old Testament who had next to nothing to bring the first 10% of all they had, why post-Jesus, when we've seen what Jesus has done for us, that he literally laid down his life for us, that he's given everything for us, why would it be any less for a New Testament believer? Secondly, I think Jesus actually affirms, reaffirms tithing in the New Testament. Matthew 23, 23. He's talking to the Pharisees. He loves getting stuck into them. And he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You give a tenth of your spices, you tithe, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Then he says, you should have practiced the latter, i.e. tithing, without neglecting the former. Sorry, you should practice the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the former, the tithing. And so I believe the tithe is something that God still wants us to set aside for him. And as we look at this passage, we see that their tithing was motivated by their love for God and by a determination in their heart, which was explained in the very last verse of the chapter, where they declare that we will not neglect the house of our God. And so tithing and giving was done for a few different reasons. We're going to unpack in a moment. First of all, to meet practical needs in the temple. Second of all, to facilitate worship. Thirdly, to fund ministry. And fourth, to further the work of God. People often say, well, what's the offering for? Where does it go? What's it used for? Well, it's thousands of years later, exactly the same stuff. If you want to know what it's used for, it's used to meet practical needs. It's used to facilitate worship. It's used to fund ministry and it's used to further the work of God. So if you look at verse 32, here's the people and they say, we assume the responsibility. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, at the new moon feast, at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. And so what we're reading about here is a voluntary tax that they've imposed upon themselves to meet the everyday needs of the temple. If you translate it into Australian dollars, it's about $2 each per year. So it's not a huge amount But when you add it all together, all the money put together actually met all the needs represented in the temple. And so they were giving to meet practical needs. And it's the same for us. As we bring our tithes and offerings each week, a portion of that goes to meeting practical needs. Sometimes we go beyond that. Like Marco today was talking about the hampers that we want to give out at Christmas time. And so beyond what we give in an offering, we we come and we bring items and we place it in and everyone does a little bit. But as everyone does a little bit, there's a lot to give out to bless people at Christmas time. In the last few weeks, we've had over 120 pancake shakers that people have generously donated to take to Red Frogs this year to care for and minister to people on schoolies. And so we give to care for practical needs. It goes on in verse 34. It says, We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine, cast lots to determine, when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And so we talked about the sacrifices that are being made and they need an altar to keep burning because those sacrifices would be presented to God as a burnt offering. And so each of those people assumed the responsibility to bring the timber to the house of God to keep the altar burning. It was giving to facilitate worship. And it's the same for us. As we regularly give, a portion goes to facilitating what we do on a weekend. And so some of your giving goes to things like rent of a building like this to purchase instruments and platforms, to get new equipment, to go towards a building, to provide morning tea. Um, Some of your giving each week goes to those things and they're incredibly important. It's giving to facilitate worship when we gather together. In verse 35, it goes on, we also resume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons, our cattle, our herds, and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. 
Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. So once again, everyone is committing to bring to the house of God their first and best to meet the need of the priest, to meet their everyday practical needs. The priests were the ones called by God. They were set apart by God to minister to the people. And so God was providing for their needs. And so as everyone bought their first and best, everything was used to meet those needs. And so it was giving to the ministry needs. And it's the same with our offering. As we give, a portion of it goes to providing an income for our pastoral staff. Verse 37, finally, it says, We'll bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithe in all the towns where we work. Now, let me just explain something briefly. The Levites were one of the tribes. Jacob, one of the patriarchs, before he died, had 12 sons, and he blessed each of them. And 11 of those, those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and 11 of those 12 tribes were given an inheritance And their inheritance was an allotment of land that God had set apart for his people. But there was one tribe, the Levites, that weren't given any land um, because they were to be spread right throughout the area to minister, to be people who uh, help the priests, to be people who are in the temple, to be people who, who do pastoral care and minister to others. And so they got no allotment of land, but instead everyone else tied 10% of everything they had and they gave it to the Levites. The Levites collected that, it met their everyday needs, but they also took a tithe from that tithe and they gave it back to the temple in order to further the work of God. And so that's how that all worked. And so the priest descended from Aaron, accompanied the Levites when they received the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. They are giving to the work of God. The people of Israel including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. And so these people gave regularly. And it's the same for us. When we give regularly, a portion of that is put into a church account and it's used for furthering the work of God, for things like pastoral care and the Blessed Collective Food Van and the um, breakfast program and supporting an overseas missionary and all that is set aside to further God's work. Here at Follow, we have a big vision and the vision is to see Jesus lifted high over this region, to see people come to know him for the first time, to see people discipled and grow in their faith. But let me say it really clearly, our spare change won't fund that mission. God is looking for people like these people who are all in, 100%. God, we are willing to assume the responsibility of whatever it takes to see this community transformed. We'll do it. Whether that's in our relationships, whether that's in our finances, whether that's in our business, whether that's in any other area of our lives. So these people put God first in their wealth. And it's a constant challenge for us also. But if you ever talk to people who are faithful in tithing, they'll tell you testimony after testimony of how God is faithful in meeting their needs. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, said that uh, 90% with the tithe will go further than the 100% without it. And I think if you talk to people who tithe, they'll tell you that's true. It doesn't make sense, but in God's economy, it works because God meets our needs. And so I want to finish today by asking you this question. Are there any areas of your life where you've made God the first loser? Is there any area of your life that you'll say, God, I'll follow you anywhere, but in that area of my life, it's too hard? I'll I'll obey God's word, I'll listen to everything he says, but there's certain areas that you have no access to. Is there any area of your life 
where you've made God the first loser. Maybe it's one of these three areas. Maybe it is relationship, business, or wealth. But maybe it's something else as well. And so I'd encourage you this week to ask God to um, convict you by his spirit in those areas that you need to fully submit to him. I pray that we will be a community of people who... I woke you up, didn't I? Community of people who... In every area of our lives.